Welcome to Abortion in the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. On today's podcast, we welcome back Dr. Russell James. Dr. James is the first repeat guest in the history of Boys from the Hills podcast. Since our last visit, Dr. James was inducted into the Charitable Gift Planners Hall of Fame. It's literally the highest honor that anybody in this profession can receive. Our focus here today really isn't on that, though. It's on an emerging theme in both the charitable and business world that Dr. James discusses in his fundraising myth and science newsletter. The theme, it's the power of the story. Because regardless of the complexities involved, our story is paramount. Every story has a hero. Every hero has a sage or an advisor. And everything else is merely a tool that helps the hero succeed on his or her quest. I think we all enjoy being the hero of our story, if we're honest. But a hero is merely a role. What we often lack or what we often need is a partner or a guide to help us write that story, to help us understand the meaningful role we play in it, someone to challenge us, join us in battle, provide us with wisdom, arm us with powerful tools, and steer us toward allies that will help us along the way. Dr. James is going to take us through that hero journey with practical tips on how we can help our donors and our clients write their own stories and how we can serve them along the way. So please join me in welcoming, back for a second trip to our podcast, Dr. Russell James. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good afternoon, Dr. James, and thank you again for joining us. You're, you're, our, first, uh, you're our first two-time visitor to the podcast. Well, I'm excited to hear that. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, the reason I wanted to have you, I wanted to dive right into your recent work by talking about, you, you refer to it as the one big thing, I guess, kind of the city slickers reference, but, <laughs> and it's the, the importance of the story. Why is story so important? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we see from lots of different disciplines is just how powerful story is. So, <laughs> excuse me, we see it from uh, neuroimaging. Uh, people uh, understand and more parts of the brain are activated when we put things into story. Uh, we, you know, we see it just in terms of how much people retain. Uh, and more than that, we see it in terms of what compels people to act. Uh, so, you know, so, so really that first idea is can we convert this sort of raw information or, uh, <coughs> excuse me, data into a story. And then beyond that is uh, what kind of story are we telling? And uh, obviously, I like to talk a lot about the universal hero story, also called the monomyth. And then, you know, as a self-described numbers guy, I mean, your, your original plan wasn't to focus on story, right? Uh, what changed? Yeah, well, so, you know, the reality is I have spent a lot of years trying to understand how do we encourage generosity. And uh, again, my PhD is in uh, consumer economics and, uh, you know, and I'm also a tax lawyer. So I start out with analyzing large data sets. Um, but as I went through that process, 
one of the things that kept coming up again and again was the power of story. And believe it or not, it even came up when we were doing neuroimaging. So this is going to sound weird, but here at the Texas Tech Neuroimaging Institute, we actually put people in brain scanners and had them do their estate planning. We wanted to learn a bit about what causes them to choose to put a charity into their estate plan. And it turns out that as compared when they're just maybe thinking about volunteering or making a small gift, when they're thinking about their estate plan and putting that charity in, they actually engage in what's called visualized autobiography. Uh, these are the regions of the brain that activate when people are mentally traveling back in time, taking an outside perspective on themselves. Uh, and uh, this was uh, quite an interesting result, especially because it matched with what some other researchers had found when they were doing in-depth qualitative interviews, that the reasons people put charities into their estate plan was because those charities fit the person's life story. So as much as I tried to avoid it, uh, the answer kept coming up as uh, as a story, you know, which honestly is tough for somebody who's, you know, not an English major, but more of a, <laughs> of a tax law and uh, economics guy. Well, and we can we can be tempted to think that, you know, the best story wins. I mean, looking at some of your, your recent work, uh, I, I think that kind of if you if you look at it that way, it might undermine the concept of experience and and math matters and structure matters and but there is a failsafe. I, I in in reading your work, it's the it's the rational error detection uh, that we have in our brains, right? We we can't just we don't just fall for the best story. The best story also has to make sense. How how do you incorporate that into the decision making of the people that you're you're working with as an advisor? Right, exactly. So, so there's two different parts. Uh, we've got the you know, what you might call that story part. That's the social, emotional component that can motivate action. But then we've also got that uh, you can think of it as the the brake on the engine, uh, which is that error detection part to make sure that hey, is everything safe here? Is everything okay here? Now, the truth of the matter is, if we're just talking about a raw financial benefit uh, decision, we don't need the social emotional story part so much. We can just look at a spreadsheet of numbers and get the right answer. But if we're moving beyond that and we're looking at the client's uh, values goals, their, uh, their quality of life goals, the, you know, the, the sort of social emotional uh, type of goals, that's when we see that story is so much more important. And if we then have that story that connects in with the client's values and goals, we want to use that story to get the client interested and compelled, but then we have need to make available at least the numbers side so that uh, they won't uh, feel like that uh, there's some error going on here so that the error detection parts of the brain uh, don't jump in and stop that activity. Now, notice that I said we need to make those available. Making that available is not the same thing as, you know, forcing your clients to uh, understand uh, uh, what beta is and if beta is dead and, you know, all these sorts of things. It, it, we make it available uh, so that they can confirm as much as they need to. And honestly, there's a lot of clients who they just want to know, do you know what you're doing and do you have my best interests at heart? And beyond that, 
The fact that you're making the numbers available is fine, but they're not going to go into it. And I think we shouldn't force them to go into that, um, depending upon uh, the client and what their level of comfort is going to be when it comes to the details. Now, frankly, if you've got a client who's an engineer, you're going to have to go into the details. So it depends on the client's well, well, the, personality. The math might be the most interesting part of the story in that in that regard. So uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it's 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 a little bit of a tightrope, I guess. I mean, if you if you have people that have come to you through some sort of referral, they've probably been given a preview of of the story and some of the math even behind it and the structure behind it. Yeah, uh, as so, opposed you know, to somebody coming in cold, right? Do you do you set the table by asking them how much they know uh, about you and your story and your organization before you start? Uh, asking them questions about their backstory? So, you know, I think what you can do is uh, you can actually just start with them. People are most interested in themselves. The most interesting story uh, for them is uh, is their story. And then when we elicit those values and we start talking about goals that will match those values, that's actually the story part. That's the compelling part. Now, along with how are we going to accomplish those goals we want to make the numbers available um, and then we can we can follow the client's lead as far as how far they want to dive into the numbers and, and this is true not just in philanthropy where i spend a lot of my time on charitable financial planning but it's actually true in financial planning in general let me give you an example another thing we did in neuroimaging is we had people play a stock market game, but they couldn't pick stocks. They could only pick financial advisors. And what we did is we wanted to see what happens in the brain when they fired their financial advisor, right? So we'd show their returns doing certain things and we'd always give them a chance. Hey, do you want to switch your advisor? This is what the market's doing. It's what your returns are doing. And it turns out that when people are getting ready to fire that advisor, they're always doing the same thing. They're engaged in error detection. They're engaged in math. Uh, they're doing numbers comparison and error detection. Now, here's the surprising part. When people were in what you might call a quiet or a safe space, they weren't planning, they're not getting ready to fire their advisor, you know, they're, they're, they're happy with where they are. You know what they were doing? They were actually looking at the faces of the advisors. So and there's a face-specific region of the brain, so, so we can tell this. And so it was almost this idea that if the, if the clients were doing numbers, that's what they do right before they fire their advisor. But if they were looking at kind of those personal characteristics, those personal connections, uh, then you're in a very safe space. Uh, now, again, that was just an experiment in, in a lab. But I think we see some of the same things that if we're always forcing the clients to look at the numbers, how are we competing with the S&P 500? What we're trying to get them to do is engage in error detection or math, which in the uh, neuroimaging is what people do before they fire their advisor. So again, there is this conflict between uh, the story and the numbers. And the numbers, we want to make them available so that the client feels comfortable, but we don't want to push the numbers. We instead want to push the story elements. What are the client's values? What is their identity, uh, their life story, and how does that relate to their goals? Uh, and then talking about accomplishing those uh, meaningful values, goals for the client. 
that's the story part. And that's the compelling part that'll make those relationships a long relationship. And when you think about it, if that rational error detection is never the thing that drives or compels the story forward, if you set up your regular review process such that you only talk about things that trigger that mechanism, uh, at best, you're staying in the same place. You you might do a really good job and never get fired, uh, but you're probably not doing a service to the client. You're not taking that next step that you would take if you were progressing along a storyline. Yeah, you and can think of it this way. I, I kind of thought about as I was going through the, the literature is, you know, it, it would be you know, almost poetic justice that our industry is set up you know, such that we talk to the client about the very thing that, you know, is going to motivate them to fire us. It's kind of, right. It's kind of right. Just thinking about it. <laughs> and, and when right. I think about it in that regard, I think, oh, it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, uh, it is something that, uh, uh that, uh, that can come up. Uh, Dina Katz, of uh, uh, professor used to office right next to me. Uh, she talked about how, uh, at one point in their practice, they actually stopped sending clients the comparison between their returns and the S&P 500. And they thought they'd get lots of phone calls and, and, and they didn't. Uh, people, you know, were fine with that. That, And again, it was this idea that we don't want to always be focused on the numbers because I don't care how good your strategy is. You're not going to beat some index like every single month or every single quarter. There's always going to be down times when uh, the math says you're messing up as an advisor, right? And so if we focus on those uh, those story elements where um, you know the client is with us because we understand their life story, we understand their values, we understand where they're trying to get to, and we are helping them uh, to get to that, that's, uh, that's going to be a much more long-term uh, relationship rather than if we're always doing number comparisons, um, because then that sets us up for the, the, the failure. I, I sometimes I like to describe it this way. The story is the engine in the car and the uh, numbers or the math, that's the brake on the car. We need to do enough of the math to make sure the foot's off the brake. But if we don't start the engine, taking your foot off the brake doesn't do anything. You're still just going to be sitting there. The client's got to have that story motivation for their goals and what you're doing and how that helps them to accomplish their meaningful uh, goals that connect in with their values. And let's talk about that, that client journey. I mean, you refer to it in your recent work as kind of a hero's journey. Uh, sure. Where you start with that uh, original identity, there's a challenge, there's victory, and then there's an enhanced identity at the end of the day if everything goes according to plan. Kind of walk us through what that looks like in in your mind and just in practice in a in a real life conference room sure so when i use those three words identity challenge victory uh, and these all connect in this uh, loop i'm trying to do the most extreme simplified version of the hero's journey. Now, the hero's journey uh, is this universal story we see across cultures. Uh, and the idea is we begin with the client's identity. Now, when I use that word, I'm referencing their values, their people, and their life story. Uh, so those values, those people, and that life story, that's what connects in 
with the challenge. Uh, in other words, so what, uh, what action do we want the client to take? In a philanthropic context, that's going to be a philanthropic investment, right? So the idea is we want the client to do an action, but we don't just start out by saying, you know, do this action. Uh, do this action because I told you so. Do this action because here's the spreadsheet. Uh, instead, we begin with the client's uh, people, you know, their, their family, their uh, loved ones, uh, their uh, values, and their uh, life history. So if any of these things connect in with or motivate the action that we're trying to challenge uh, the client to take, then our uh, challenge is going to be much more likely to be accepted. Now, whenever we give the client, tell the client to do something that we want them to do, uh, you know, whether that be uh, a, a particular, um, uh, you know, an insurance product or an investment product or whatever the case might be, that challenge needs to promise a victory. In other words, here's going to be the positive outcome that results from this uh, as a result of, uh, of doing this. And that positive outcome is going to be meaningful. And the reason it's going to be meaningful is it will then link back to their people, their values, uh, or their life story. So let's take something as sort of mundane and technical as estate planning, right? If we simply say you need to do estate planning, everybody needs to do estate planning, here's a spreadsheet that says do estate planning, hard to compel action. But if we instead start with you know, the client's people, their values. This is important because, uh, you know, maybe you don't just want to leave a big sack of cash. Maybe you want to leave some instructions with that money. Might be helpful for them because otherwise that money might be spent in a way that doesn't fit with your values. Uh, and those values will come from the donor's life story. So when we challenge them to take the action, go through the estate planning process, we're doing that because this will advance their uh, people, their values, their life story. It fits and it comes with the promise of a victory. And that victory is that their estate, their wealth will live on after them in a way that reflects their identity. It will help their people, but it will help their people according to their values. So it connects back in with their identity and it gives them a bit of an enhanced identity in the sense that uh, uh, that now that they've done this uh, detailed plan, it's like they will continue to be there for their loved ones. You know, maybe they've got a, uh, a, 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 a descendant who they know if they give that grandkid a bunch of money, they're just going to become a trust fund kid, right? They're going to be sitting in the basement uh, eating Cheetos and smoking dope, and that violates their values, right? So instead, maybe we say, well, let's set up a, a, a wage matching uh, trust where if you go out and get a job, we'll, we'll double or triple that, right? Uh, but if you want to sit in your uh, basement and do nothing, you're not going to get anything from this. Or maybe it's something for education or for buying a first home. Again, it's the idea that we convert these raw numbers, where as an estate planning attorney, all I care about is like, hey, here's the, the tax liability. You've got this 401k IRA, IRA money that the kids are going to have to pay income taxes on if we don't, you know, don't plan it or a, or a few clients are in the estate tax. And, and I want to talk numbers immediately. But if instead 
we talk story and that being the motivation, um, that can uh, get a client much more committed to the process and, and ultimately much happier with the result because they see how this has resulted in a victory where they have been able to uh, accomplish something that's meaningful to them. And we can talk the same thing for other, you know, maybe we're talking uh, life insurance, right? It's the idea of we, we want to provide for our families because that matches the values uh, uh, if, you know, that, uh, that we want to accomplish or annuities or, you know, whatever the product might, might be, we can put that in terms of the donors, uh, excuse me, in terms of the, uh, the client's uh, journey and what they want to accomplish that not only fits in with their people, their values, and their life story, but actually advances that and uh, enhances their uh, identity, their people, their values, or their life story. Yeah. And one of the, you know, one of the things that we do here at, at Silicon Hills is we, we really get involved on the philanthropic part of our of our clients, uh, financial planning. And we've got a couple that we've been working with for about oh, five or six years now. And, uh, this whole idea of the client as the hero really hit home when I, when I think about them, in fact, in, our, in their last meeting with us, we, we inserted something on in one of the tiles that just basically flat out said, you know, you're a hero. Um, because I, I think you could probably fill an auditorium with all the people that they've helped over the years. I mean, they do the work, they accept new challenges, they take risks, uh, you know, they do some scary things that they don't really have to do or that they're not necessarily called to do by anybody other than themselves. And like most heroes, you know, they occasionally get recognized for it, but you know, for the most part, most of the people that they've benefited don't don't really interact with them. So they don't have that necessarily, but you know, so when you don't get recognized for your work, I guess the question I always think about is, you know, do they see themselves as heroes and, and the concept of that enhanced identity at the, as a result of victory, is that really happening? You know, I, that's the thing I go back and, and question. And I think to myself, how do we help them see what we see? If I see a hero, how do we help them look in the mirror and see that? Yeah, you know, so so that is a challenge. The the story elements are always there, depending upon the person's uh, personality. They may shy away from that kind of language, uh, and so you might have to, uh, uh, you know, you might have to couch it in uh, in other terms uh, uh, that they're more comfortable with. Uh, but there is this underlying idea that you know, even if someone does something anonymously it can still fit their values and it can still advance how they see themselves. Uh, and so it can be a, a heroic journey. Now, typically with a heroic journey, we expect that there's going to be a uh, not only a victory, but a resolution where the hero's victory is confirmed and their enhanced identity is confirmed, uh, whether that be you know the ending of the original Star Wars where they uh, get medals uh, uh, or uh, some other form that there there is some public recognition of that. But for some people, public recognition does not fit their values. It does not fit their life story. And so they are able to experience the enhanced identity, even without that public recognition, just by saying, hey, this is the impact that, that I've made. And it's very exciting that I could be part of uh, making this uh, making this impact. Uh, and so when, when it comes to uh, philanthropy, which is 
all about values. Uh, you know, it's all about uh, trying to accomplish something that that's uh, that's meaningful. It, it really is about what is a meaningful impact for them. In, in talking with fundraisers, I'll call this uh, helping the donor to define a personally meaningful victory. Uh, that means within this story context, what is the victory that connects in with their people, their values, and their life story? And so we can do this with clients just by asking open-ended questions like, hey, if money were no object, what would you want to do philanthropically, right? That idea of understanding where is it that in an ideal world they would like to go. Uh, and then we can maybe begin to construct some options that are uh, that are uh, particularly uh, compelling for them. I love what uh, uh, one fundraiser said to me, uh, which I think fits. He said, I don't ask people for money. I ask people to do things that cost money. <laughs> so it was the idea of I, I'm out there selling the impact that they can make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, to that point, you know, every hero needs a sage, or at least most of them, I think they do. And, and, and you're writing, you talk a lot about the advisor as the state, as the sage and the role that they play. Yeah. Describe so that role and the challenges that are, that lie in that role. And I guess, secondarily, how do we get that client to invite us into their world as that, as not just another advisor, but you know, how do we cross over into that world of trusted advisor or sage? I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of our clients that work with multiple professionals and they tend to have one or two that they truly rely on that, uh, yeah. you know, as a, you know, as a sage, so to speak. I was just wondering if you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So, of course, in this universal hero story, uh, there is another universal character besides the hero, and that is uh, the wise guiding sage. In the original Star Wars, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi. And uh, in the original Matrix, uh, uh, Neo is advised by Morpheus. Or uh, if you like uh, the Hobbit, this is going to be Gandalf the Grey, right? So this person comes alongside the prospective hero uh, and uh, not only challenges them to, to act, but actually provides advice, guidance, and planning. Uh, that happens in all three of those stories. That's part of what the guiding sage does, and, and that's what makes the guiding sage attractive. Uh, now, one of the challenges is for the, for the, the client to accept that person as a guiding sage uh, from a story context, there's actually another character, which is the shadow character of the guiding sage known as the jester. Now, these are similar characters. They're both good at talking. Uh, they, they both uh, will, uh, you know, will be interesting to listen to and say things, but, but they are, they're, they're opposites of each other because the jester isn't interested in going along for the whole journey. Right. They're just there to deliver the punchline and they quit at the punchline. The jester doesn't know stuff. Right. They're entertaining. They're social. Uh, they, they connect with people, but but they don't they don't really have the expertise. And so um, the idea is how do we show ourselves as being that wise guiding sage and not being the jester who's just there to hit the punchline and move on to the next client, right? So you know there are some sales-oriented people that, that take that approach. They're not there for the whole journey. Well, there's some different ways we can do that. Obviously, 
knowing what in the world you're talking about helps, right? So if you sure. want to be the wise guiding sage, you got to take the time to know what you're talking about. Uh, and beyond that, we sometimes need to be there for the long term, right? We need to, to, to be available uh, and we want to have these longer relationships. Now, how do you quickly establish yourself in that role? Well, I'll tell you one thing that works in a variety of contexts, and that is the idea of advising against interest. This is the idea where you're going to have a circumstance where you're going to tell the client to do something that they know is financially harmful for you, or at least not financially beneficial to you, right? The idea of, uh, well, you could do this. A lot of people like this. And yes, I, I would, you know, it, it would be a lot more uh, fees for me or a commission for me or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think you probably would be better off doing this other thing. And, and there's no commission for me and no fees if you do that. But I think that's going to be better for you. Whenever we start getting into that habit of advising against interest, it changes the relationship dramatically because all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, that's not how a salesperson acts. What is this person doing? Well, you're changing that relationship and that role, and you're doing it very quickly when you do something that doesn't fit one of the character roles and instead fits another character role, and that's how you help the client to identify which character are you uh, in these sort of classic story characters? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not the jester, so maybe I'm the sage. So, that's right. That's right. I'm. Yeah. I'm providing advice, guidance, planning. I'm not just there to sell you stuff, right? I'm not just there to you know always be closing. I'm not just there to uh, to to uh, close the deal, get the commission, move on to the next thing. Uh, and that's uh, being able to show that. Uh, and uh, show it quickly by advising against interest or over the long term, just having those long term relationships uh, that, that can be helpful. Even something as simple, even if it's not advising against interest, doing some stuff for free. Right. That's an example of, wait, I'm not I'm not sure you're not charging me for this. Oh, no, no, no. This is just to you know, this is just to help you out. Oh, well we have a different kind of relationship then if we're, you know, if we're not, uh, if you're not just selling me stuff. Uh, so, so that mm -hmm. can change the view of what character you are playing in that client's life. Yeah. I think I've, I've seen that in the uh, philanthropic world with development advisors where, you know, you'll, you'll have that standard comment from a client who will say, you know, yes, I talked to so-and-so, but you know, every time I talk to them, they ask for money. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it seems like the development officers I know that are the most successful do not make an ask at every meeting. I mean, some meetings just aren't about the organization or what the organization needs. And yes, you're, that you're is absolutely a, that right. Is a real, that's a real game changer for the, for the donor because the donor leaves that meeting going, did, did they forget to ask for money or, you know, what's the, you know, what's going on here? I think it's a very similar thing to what you said, you know, Jester and Sage. I, I think sometimes we get a little too rhythmic with, you know, all of our donors know that, you know, the, the function of a, of an organization and the people that represents it is to raise money for the organization. We, you know, mm -hmm. we get that. Mm -hmm. um, but when you start talking about the relationship between the donor and the organization, I think you refer to it as the the conflict where maybe the organization views 
themselves and their administrators internally on their own hero's journey. And that often can conflict with the donors. And I, and I think that's true with a lot of businesses too. I think there are a lot of businesses that see their their business platform or their way of doing things as the predominant uh, the predominant story at play and everybody else is just kind of working with that. I think you talked about the role of, uh, of an advisor as a translator to try to, you know, where the organization speaking Russian, the client speaking Spanish, and they don't understand each other. The role of the, of that advisor in the middle is to really translate and really talk, talk both sides of the journey to, you know, to each of the constituencies. How do, how do they do that? What's the... Yeah. So, you know, you have to, you start out with this idea that sometimes the the internal folks, they think that the job is, you're just supposed to go sell, 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 right? You're just supposed to sell, close, 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 always be closing. That's what you're supposed to do. And, and the truth of the matter is, look, that might work for hitting your next quarter's numbers, but it's never going to give you those long-term relationships that are uh, that are going to lead to you know significant amounts of trust uh, that lead to the the big dollar decisions. Uh, and when you're working with the the uh, clients or on the donor side, you're trying to establish those long-term relationships of trust. You're essentially trying to say, "I'm here to help you." Now there's a conflict because you've got the internal organization that thinks, "Well, your job is to go out and say we're so wonderful, right? We have the most amazing product." Um, and, and close that deal. And the most powerful relationship, though, isn't that sell, sell, sell relationship. The most powerful relationship is I'm here to help you. I am a wise guiding sage. You wouldn't use those words, but I have a lot of expertise and I help people like you. Uh, let me give you some examples of ways that I've helped, you know, helped other people in the past that are in situations like yours. Uh, and starting that relationship and Bottom line, providing value to the client, whether, you know, you're working with a donor or you're working with a client, it is this issue of, are we just there to push product or are we actually there to build this long-term relationship of providing value to the client through our expertise and and our ideas? And, and again, whenever we do something that you know, that says, uh, for example, as a fundraiser saying, um, yeah, it would be really great for you to make this gift, but I think maybe you should, you know, wait for about six months and let's see how the administration uh, changes with this new leadership change to make sure you're still comfortable with it. Well, you do that with a donor, you know, the shocked look on their face of, wait a second, you're not just sell, sell, selling me. You're, you know, you're advising against interest in this case. Uh, you're, uh, you're trying to help me uh, accomplish my goals. Or, or even if you say, um, you know, understanding the client's goals and saying, well, you know, there's another opportunity that is not with our organization uh, that you might be interested in. Uh, now, that seems like, you know, oh, that's not sales. That's terrible. You would never do that. Well, actually, it's not terrible because for the long term, the, the client is going to or the donor is going to become more comfortable in having these more open conversations. If you're seen not as just somebody who's always be closing, but you're somebody who's there as an expert to 
give advice and uh, to help out, you know, whenever possible. That may or may not involve something related to your organization, but that's not, you know, that that's not the critical thing. The critical thing is you're there to uh, provide that advice, that guidance, that planning uh, for their broader questions rather than just having this one product you just want to sell 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 yeah and i think even in terms of restrictions on gifts versus unrestricted i mean you you find that i think this is a pretty common uh comment that i get from development officers particularly with larger more well-established charities the 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 comment is always you know it's it's really hard for people to feel like they're having an impact you know, on or our organization because they know how large it is and they just, in many cases, don't feel like their donations uh, warrant, you know, any impact measurement or it doesn't give them that, that sense of victory that you might get in or that they might hope for them to get. And I, and I know several of the people that we work with use the restrictions on the gifts as a way to compartmentalize what they're doing and create a smaller subset within a large, a smaller pond within a bigger sea. Yes. Uh, and I think that's, that is truly impactful because you can take the largest organization and shrink it down however you like, you know, however you like to. And I, and I think at the end of the day, that opens the doors for, for unrestricted gifts down the road that may not have happened otherwise. So it's, it's interesting how, in some cases, the administration inside those organizations doesn't doesn't necessarily view that as a as as positive a development as as I do. But it's uh... right. Well, you know, and you've got to understand, you've got a conflict of hero stories there, where the charity administrators they're the hero of their story, and of course the 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 donors are just supposed to uh, be enamored by how wonderful they are and lay money at their feet and not ask any questions uh, or have any opinions, but but that's not really compelling to donors. I mean, yeah, it'll get you the pat on the head gift or isn't that nice for you people gift, but it's not going to give you that major investment. Uh, you know, if you want to motivate that major type of uh, gift, you're, you're going to have to answer the question, I gave what changed, right? And if the answer is, well, nothing, or we don't know, or it's too vague, I mean, there, you know, there's no reason to to make another gift. But this comes back to what you were saying before of where, for example, the, the, uh, the development officer, the fundraiser is sort of in the middle where they've got to translate. So you've got these administrators that say, you know, we don't want any, we don't want to put the, the donor putting instructions with their money. We're supposed to get to put all the instructions with their money. And so then you have to translate that and say, well, I've got this donor and he wants to give us this gift uh, that's a restricted gift. Now, he can either give it to us or um, he can set up his own private family foundation or he can work with the community foundation to put those instructions on it. But I'd kind of rather that he gave it to us so we could manage those funds. Like, what do you think, administrator? Right. So what you're doing is you're translating because the donor w wants to put the instructions with the money because they're the hero of their story. And that's what makes the gift compelling is, is the instructions. The administrator doesn't want any instructions with the money. But if you present it and say, well, look, this is the competition. 
right? Mm -hmm. Our competition is uh, the Private Family Foundation. It's the Community Foundation. The donor can accomplish this with these other things, uh, but I'd rather he send the money to us. And that reframes it. So now you're translating that language uh, for the the insider of the charity to say, oh, yeah, well, in that case, uh, you know, and honestly, this is something a lot of charities don't realize. They think that they're in conflict with the donor over who's going to control the money. That's not the case at all. That's not it, yeah. (laughs) They are in competition with the other ways that the donor can choose to put instructions with money. And believe it or not, when we look at national data and, uh, for example, in charitable estate planning, for uh, states that are $5 million and above, Mm -hmm. 78% of the dollars that go to charity go to private family foundations. So- public charities are only getting 22% of those dollars. And so the wow. idea that they are coming out with this message that says, oh, we don't, we don't want donors to put instructions with their money, right? But it's the instructions that make the gift compelling. I mean, y- you want to talk about a crazy level of gift restrictions. Private foundation is pages and pages and pages of, of instructions that are going to control that gift for all eternity, right? For generations. Those are massive gift instructions. And they generate massive gifts. Uh, so, so again, it's this idea of translating for the insider that you're not in a competition with your donor over who's going to put their instructions with the money. You're in competition with community foundation, private family foundation, uh, or us as to who is going to control that donor money that comes with the donor's instructions. Yeah, this is not only the way we win the business, this may be the only way we win the business. Yeah, yeah and, so and the reality you know, is if you don't go that way, what you'll win, you'll win, you'll win small. Um, small. Because big gifts come with those instructions. They've got to be compelling for the donor's life story. All right, well, let's have some fun. I reached out to some people who operate in your world, and I asked them to to give me some questions to uh, to throw your way. So I'm going to give All you right, a couple All right, stump scenarios. the professor. That sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, so let's say I'm, I'm a new prospective donor. I've given you know pocket change gifts in the past, but my daughter just recently graduated from Texas Tech, uh, which is true. I have you have limited background on my financials, done some prep work for the meeting, and we're about to meet for the first time. How do you apply your research to help start that process, and what do you hope to get out of that initial interaction? Sure. So going back to those three words that I mentioned at the beginning, connecting the identity to the challenge, the challenge to the victory, the victory back to identity. We want to ask questions that do two things. The first thing we want to do is to ask questions that will connect the donor's identity to a potential uh, challenge. Uh, That is, how is the donor connected to uh, the organization, to philanthropy? Uh, What are their people, their values, uh, their, their other connections? And then later we want to actually help the donor to define a personally meaningful victory. Uh, what sort of, uh, of a gift would be compelling uh, for them. And we generally start out blue sky, you know, if money were no object, what would be, what would you do? But, but then we, we get some of the values of that. So we might start with the uh, idea of uh, trying to understand, and what I'm going to be trying to do is to elicit the connections of your people, your values, or your life story connections to uh, philanthropy, to this cause, to this organization. So for example, since I know we've got that family connection uh, of uh, your daughter having graduated from uh, from Texas Tech, 
hey, tell me about how you guys decided to, to come to Texas Tech, right? going to learn a little bit about that and what what was the what were the what were the good parts of uh, of her experience uh, along those uh, ways uh, along those lines right uh, um and uh, you know uh, what about you were you part of this decision or did she do that on her own you know uh, to to sort of elicit what are what are some of those kinds of uh, connections and uh, um you know again i'm trying to see what those connections might be and then um, you know, say, oh, by the way, you know, so I, I work for the uh, advancement uh, staff. That's the that's the fundraising folks. I'm not I'm not going to ask you for a gift, but uh, do you ever make gifts to any kinds of organizations? Are you into philanthropic stuff? Now, if I find that out and you tell me, say, for example, oh, I don't know, you you give to a, uh, a local animal shelter. I'm going to start having conversations with you about, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we're, uh, just started a new veterinary school, uh, and, uh, don't know if you'd heard about that, that, uh, that's just started up in, uh, in Amarillo doing lots of interesting things with, uh, animals there. And in fact, we've got a department of animal behavior here. And one of the projects they're doing is, uh, working with dogs and their training that helps them to, okay. So you see where I'm going with this, right? What I am doing is I'm trying to elicit what is your philanthropic motivation, right? And so maybe I begin by, you know, very broadly asking, where are you giving? Maybe you give to the American Cancer Society, all right? You know what I'm going to start talking about next is some of the cool things we're doing in cancer research at the Health Sciences Center at Texas Tech. You know, whatever it is, the idea is I want to have these conversations so that I can not only understand your connection to the organization and to see if there's any connections that might connect, because I am, as the advisor, I'm always thinking of the potential challenge, right? What is the giving opportunity that is going to excite this person? And the way that I learn that is I try to elicit those people, those values, or those life story elements that connect you in with some potential things that we're doing or could be doing uh, at our uh, at our organization. Um, so, so that's a bit of the process. You know, further down in the process, I might ask you about some uh, some blue sky victory ideas of uh, of uh, you know if you could do anything to make a difference on campus. Uh, you know us. You know what's going on here. Uh, how would you? Uh, improve Texas Tech for the better, right? You tell me something, maybe you're going to tell me something about, oh, well, I would like us to win the Big 12 every year in football. Okay, that lets me know a little bit about where your philanthropic interests are. Or, you know, I would like every student in the state of Texas who wants to go to be able to go whether they can afford it or not. Ooh, okay, I've got lots of giving opportunities that are going to match that, right? So mm -hmm. this is the process, uh, is to elicit these things, oftentimes through uh, Socratic conversations to, uh, to find out uh, what would be compelling to you uh, about a particular giving opportunity. And I would say, so you're at the end of the day and not to put words in your mouth. I mean, what yeah. you really want to do is kind of open the door for me to the organization without, without really there being any monetary specific monetary issues at play. It's find out what's important to me, find out what I might be interested in. And in some way, find out if I, if I have, uh, you know, the willingness to connect further on that some some way shape or form so if you if we're leaving the meeting and i've 
I've given you my phone number, my email address. And I've said, yes, I've, I'd love to hear more about X, Y, or Z. Is, is that really the, is that the takeaway that you want, you know, from yeah. that first meeting at a minimum? Right. So the idea is with a, a major gifts relationship, it's going to be um, one to three years before we get to an ask. Okay. So there's going to be a number of these meetings. Uh, the next step that I may be pushing you to may not be to a proposal. It may be to another event. Uh, you know, hey, you're, you were mentioned you uh, supported your local animal shelter. We're doing this thing at the, uh, at the uh, um, veterinary school uh, that I think you might be really interested in. We, you know, would you uh, be able to be, you know, be here? So again, Part of that process is I'm trying to get you involved. Uh, um, you know, it may be a process of uh, uh, I'd love for you to just, you know, meet with our chancellor. Come on campus. He can show you some of the things that are happening. And, uh, you know, you mentioned you give the American Cancer Society. He can, uh, he can show you some of the things that we're doing that are really exciting here uh, related to nutrition and cancer research. And uh, just show you what's going on. Would you, would you be willing to uh, take a little walk around, right? So notice that this is not, I'm not going to be closing any deals, right? Not uh, right. that th th this is, this is not financial. This is trying to get you more connected. And ultimately, yes, we will get to the point where, um, I will ask you about, you know, we've been talking about, uh, these goals that you have and, and you've seen all the things that are happening here. Um, I've got some ideas of, what some other folks have uh, done uh, who have similar goals to you. Uh, and I think some of you, some of them might be of interest to you. Uh, would you be willing to, to get together in a couple of weeks? I can uh, present some different uh, uh, ideas for you, see if any of them are uh, attractive on, on ways that you could make a really big impact here on campus. Okay, that's where I'm asking to ask you for money, right? Uh, I am asking for uh, the opportunity to uh, make a proposal. Uh, but I'm not necessarily going to do that ask on the first meeting. Uh, I'm just trying to get you to get more involved with the organization in those things where I know you have a philanthropic interest. Um, because as I get you more involved, then you're going to see opportunities where, oh, wow, it could could really make a big difference if there was another scholarship here, right? Or if somebody did a, an endowed professorship or, you know, wh whatever the case uh, case may be. Uh, now, of course, there is the financial reality that, hey, we got a department uh, on campus that uh, that makes estimates on donor capacity uh, that you, you don't want to spend all of this time with someone who at the end of the day, they, they just don't have capacity to make that kind of a gift. Um, but well, if there is somebody who has uh, capacity to, to, to make a gift that, uh, that warrants the, uh, the time to get involved, that's the process. It's not, you know, ask, ask, ask. It's uh, uh, finding out what those people, values, life story, identity connections are, what is that uh, meaningful victory, uh, and getting them more involved so that it becomes more a part of their life so that all of a sudden that challenge starts to become more and more compelling because now they're part of the community. Uh, these people are people that they know, uh, and, uh, and that's what makes things compelling. And so let's say that our, our initial meeting went well, uh, that you know, one year kind of courtship where we get from the, you know, we get from the ascer ascertaining what is important to me to connecting me with what it is to asking for the ask to making the ask. And now I've finally done it. 
I, I made a major gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, as happens, I think with most of the clients that we work with and most of the stories that I'm privy to, you know, once someone commits to a major gift, whether it's a state or, or, you know, or present gift, they tend to follow that commitment up with annual gifts. Uh, maybe not to that level, but, you know, certainly once they commit to an estate gift uh, for a university, let's say the odds of them giving annually to that university are, are pretty strong. I mean, mm-hmm. I, maybe not a hundred percent, but they're pretty strong. So let, let's say I, I develop a relationship I'm giving on an annual basis fairly significant amount, nothing that would be major, but significant. How do you keep the story fresh for me? How do I, how do I avoid falling into something that feels like a routine and no longer feels like a hero journey to me? I I see that happening a little bit. How, How do you, how do you guard against that? Yeah. So it's real straightforward. You've got to finish the story. And this is where a lot of charities are complete garbage. They are great at making the challenge. Here's the heroic opportunity to make this huge impact. And then they get the check and then the story ends. There's no victory where they say, hey, here is what your gift did. Here is the impact. Uh, There's no climax to the story, right? There's also no resolution to the story. The resolution is when the hero's victory is not only is the victory confirmed, but the personal transformation of the hero is confirmed. So the uh, charities often will not confirm uh, that they, that the donor actually did make a huge impact. They, they will not uh, have an expression of gratitude for the impact that that donor made. They, they will not have an expression of, uh, of just how meaningful it is uh, that the donor uh, would do this, uh, this sort of thing. So again, it's almost like you're telling a story where, um, you know, you've got uh, think of the matrix where uh, Morpheus says you can take the red pill or the blue pill. And, uh, you know, after all this hesitation, Neo uh, takes the red pill and then the movie ends. Right. <laughs> there's no uh, there's no journey. There's no uh, victory. There's uh, you know, he doesn't uh, uh, in the he doesn't develop into a he doesn't into a different character, all of that. That's oftentimes how charities will tell the story, um, because from their perspective, th- th- this isn't a donor story. This is our story. And the donor's just so the there story. To- the story's over as soon as we got the check. That, as soon as we the, got the check. The right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, and so to keep it sort of fresh and exciting, uh, it's actually to bottom line, deliver value to the donor. Look. If you want a donor to make a repeat gift of the same size, make sure the donor experience was worth the gift, right? If the donor's experience was worth the gift, they're going to want to do it again. Uh, and if the story ends, you know, at the punchline, if it if it ends when the donor accepts the challenge, and and then you know the the, the book ends or the, the 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 credits roll, nobody wants to repeat that story again. That that's not an enjoyable experience. Uh, so then it really comes into that point of finishing that story. Does the donor feel like they have won a victory? Right? Do they feel like their gift? 
made a difference? Did, did is has that feeling been confirmed by reports of impact, by expressions of gratitude from those uh, who have seen the impact, or maybe even those who have been impacted, depending on the scenario? Um, you know, has it has it have they received a confirmation of you know that people are recognizing? what kind of a person they are that what what their values are because they they have done this uh, so again that really comes to uh to finishing that story delivering the value for the donor uh because uh, frankly if you have a story like that you know you're going to see the sequel even if it's as garbage as the matrix sequels were you're still going to keep going back because that first experience was so great it's so good you yeah you got to you got to do it so talking about that i mean that puts some onus on you know the advisor that works directly with the you know with the client whether it's a financial advisor representing a larger company or a a development officer representing a charity let's talk about transition and turnover because in in the heroic stories, the sage hardly ever leaves the hero. Mm-hmm. They're, they're by their side forever. Mm-hmm. In the real world, you know, advisors change jobs, they retire, they, they go from one place to another. How can an organization best handle losing an, uh, an effective advisor like that? And can the advisor become so important to the donor or the client that it's not, that it could be actually detrimental to the organization? How do, how does somebody as an organization foster the the role of the advisor as a sage without giving away their uh, their ultimate, uh, I guess, just their ultimate tie to the customer? Yeah. So the idea is, uh, are we talking about a situation in which this guiding sage is the role of an organization or is it the role of just one person? Uh, now, if it's just one person and that person leaves, then that relationship is over. Uh, if it is, no, this is what the organization does. They are throughout the organization. They view their role as trying to uh, provide value to the donor, to uh, provide wisdom, guidance, uh, advice, planning, that essentially they feel like our role is to help the donor accomplish what they want to accomplish. If that is throughout the organization, uh, then the idea is you can not only have that individual relationship, but you can kind of have that ongoing relationship because that's the that's becomes the culture of the organization. It also really helps if the organization has uh, has metrics or systems that are designed to encourage sharing, uh, in other words, sharing of donors or of clients. So I'll give you an example. Like there's some universities uh, where if uh, if I bring in another fundraiser who say is an expert in some plan giving techniques, uh, they're going to cut my credit in half for this gift. Right. Uh, and so that's not going to happen. Uh, even if I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not bringing somebody else in. There's other universities where if I bring that person is in, uh, they're going to double count both of us get full credit for the gift. Uh, And so, and also, by the way, if I bring this person on this gift, then they're probably going to bring me in on something else. That encourages the kinds of relationships which not only provide greater value to the client, because you're always open to bring in somebody else that can do a little bit more uh, than you can in a particular area, but really helps to build that 
client's relation or that donor's relationship with the organization say no this, this is what the whole organization does uh, so again it comes to that you know are your structures set up to encourage um, you know uh, sharing clients or sharing donors uh, because if they aren't um, you know that will have a consequence when that person leaves and then you know victory is kind of one of those things that's implied in the in the hero's journey i mean you're showing obviously the challenge what victory looks like and everything but you know we all have setbacks too we all we all make make gifts or make investments or make things that actually didn't or don't go according to plan mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to have a long-term relationship without something like that happening at some point so how do you acknowledge those setbacks uh, make them a part of the story without, you know, without it really setting back the overall progress of the, of the relationship. Yeah. Well, in reality, that is a universal and perhaps even essential part of the story, right? That after the hero accepts the challenge, the victory doesn't just come, you know, there, there are lots of things in between where, uh, well, you know, the heroes decided to go on this journey and, uh, but we've run into a bump in the road, right? We've got this other issue that's come up. And so now let's, let's work together to deal with this issue. There's always some kryptonite somewhere. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So to understand that when that happens, the key thing is to understand that you need to maintain your character role, right? Okay, we have this issue that that has come up, and uh, and we thought this was going to be a very straightforward journey, but now we've got this big dragon in the way. Um, let's talk about that. How do we uh, how do we now deal with this new situation? How do we deal with this uh, with this dragon? Well, here's some advice. Here's some guidance. Here's some planning, uh, because I know that you still want to have that impact that we talked about initially. I know that's important to you, uh, and uh, we need to figure out how to get to that place. You know, so again, it's that idea of yeah, bumps in the road, challenges, uh, all of that definitely part of the story and the and the key is all the way through is to maintain that character role my job is to help you complete this heroic journey my job is to make you feel like you know you have had this impact that you wanted to have and it's an impact that is personally meaningful to you uh, to confirm that you have had that impact to help you get to that impact um, and my role whether it's at the ask or after the ask or all the way through the process is always the same it's that guiding sage uh, role that uh, you know goes along with the, the whole journey just like those uh, those uh, guiding sage characters in the movie they don't disappear once the prospective hero says yes let's go on the journey they're there for all the bumps along the road uh, because there are going to be those challenges and uh, that uh, that hero is still going to need that wise guidance uh, advice and planning along the way to deal with those challenges well i think the uh, industry is all the better for your wise guidance that you uh, have provided along the way how many uh how many followers do you have on your on your LinkedIn now? Is it what several thousand, right? That, yeah, yeah, that yeah. So uh, newsletter. 
Yeah, I think we're, uh, uh, we've are we got uh, a little over 5,000 subscribed to that newsletter, so that's encouraging, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, people will stay interested as we get deeper into the weeds of the hero's journey in a philanthropic context, and uh, and actually after we uh, end this series that is on the uh, hero's journey, we're going to start a new one that's called the Socratic Fundraiser, and it's going to be all about how do we ask questions to help the donor go through the steps of this journey. Yeah, so they could def- everybody could definitely follow you on LinkedIn. You can see all of your work uh, online. It's uh, I yeah, I do share all my stuff for free. If you're willing to connect with me on LinkedIn, I will send you links to all of the books that I have for free: audio books, uh, slide sets, academic journal articles, which of course nobody wants to read, but they'll be there for you <laughs> as well. Uh, slide sets from presentations I've done. I share all my stuff for free if you just connect with me on LinkedIn. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I didn't get a chance to uh, congratulate you on your induction into the uh, Gift Planners Hall of Fame during our oh, last uh, during our last visit. But congratulations. That's quite an honor and well-deserved. And we really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you. And that's a wrap for our podcast conversation with Kevin Lozer. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you so much for sharing your vision and passion that ultimately led to, you know, the development of Holista Plan and bringing it to market. It's just another example of how necessity is truly the mother of invention. We hope that you all enjoyed our conversation with Kevin. If you did, please subscribe to our Voice from the Hills podcast. We are available on all podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. Uh, If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Silicon Hills Wealth and and what we do and how we service clients, please check us out on the web at siliconhillswealth.com. And we want to remind you once again that we so much appreciate you listening and sharing our content because we can only do our best work 